0: Mount Pleasant. It's great to be with you. If you have a Bible, would you please turn uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I I think this is the third time that I've had the privilege to be with you and to uh, uh, worship with you and to preach God's Word with you on Sunday morning, and so what a joy it is to be back. I I love your student ministry. I love Pastor Joe and Allison, and just the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing here at Mount Pleasant. And this past weekend, uh, we've been, um, and in fact, you can send me the therapy bill, uh, but we've been working through the Book of Ecclesiastes with these students. And uh, what we've been asking them to do, and what I would even ask you this morning, is what's the question in your life to what you're living for? What are you living for? What is it in life, because everybody's doing this, what is it in life that you're trying to find to provide meaning in your life? Maybe it's someone, maybe it's something, but but everybody's trying to find meaning in life. And one of the reasons why I love the book of Ecclesiastes is because it helps us have a very honest conversation about the world in which we live. Our world is broken, it is fallen. There is real pain and suffering, and many of you know that well. And what sometimes we have the temptation as Christians to do is kind of live in our Christian bubble and just kind of plug our ears and ignore the reality of life in a fallen world. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes will not let us do that. In fact, it's an example of a man who is searching for meaning in life, He's looking at all of life under the sun, and he's come to a conclusion. In fact, he says it 38 times in the book, that everything is vanity, that everything is meaningless, that there really is no point. And what we've looked at this weekend is this man has tried knowledge, he's tried pleasure, like if I could just enjoy everything life has to offer, then I'd find meaning, He's tried possessions and status, and every time he comes back to the conclusion that it is vanity. And what we've been trying to do with the young people, and what I want us to do this morning, is I want to show us how it's actually the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us the answer to meaning of life. Would you this morning enter in with me for a very honest conversation as to what you're living for? Could we be honest this morning and look at the reality of life and all of its brokenness and see the beauty and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Could we do that? Well then I'm going to ask you if you would to please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I am absolutely convinced that every single one of these words is breathed out by God. This word comes with the very authority of God himself. Look at verse 1. I said in my heart, come now. I'll, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who were before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege to be here on this Sunday morning to be able to have an honest conversation, a conversation that your word allows us to have to take an honest look at life around us, the things that our hearts pursue in order to find meaning and how they fall short. Help us this morning be clear about where hope is found. Help us be clear where meaning and purpose is found. And, And I just pray that everyone, everyone in this room would leave here in just a few moments with the certainty that they have found hope and meaning in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that I pray, and all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. Well, most of my childhood was spent growing up in the 1980s. Now, I know, I'm old. Some of you are like, that's arrogant, right? What are you talking about, old in the 1980s? But as I thought about growing up in the 1980s, I thought about what an awesome decade to grow up in. There were things like amazing inventions, inventions like the Rubik's Cube. I mean, how awesome was that? Or how many of you remember the clapper? Remember the clap on, clap off? Yeah, that was an awesome invention. Or one that was a benefit to me was the trapper keeper. You remember the trapper keeper? It was like a notebook and a time machine all in one. In the 1980s, there was great technology. You remember the Atari It had two games, and it was all about shooting rocks. There was the VCR. How many of you still have a VCR? Don't admit that publicly, that you have a VCR. There was amazing social trends in the 1980s, like breakdancing. I remember I used to do the worm in high school. Like how awesome, I can't do that in the Baptist church, but in high school I could. There was roller skating in the 1980s. And I'm going to be real honest with you. I was caught up in this as well in the 1980s. The social trend of Hulkamania. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was a Hulkamaniac. But of all the inventions, of all the contributions that came out of the 1980s, probably the greatest contribution to pop culture had to be the (laughs) hairband. Grown men with enough hairspray to set the world on fire. And I thought about that as I came across an article some time ago about one of the lead singers of of a 1980s hair band. In fact, the, the, the band was called Warrant, and the lead singer was a man by the name of Janie Lane. Now Janie, like a lot of the rock stars in the 1980s, like gave himself completely to the party scene. He all kinds of women, drugs, alcohol. He was immersed in all of that. And yet what he said was, even with all that partying, even with all that lifestyle, I still couldn't find meaning. There was still something in my life that was missing. And so he went out on a search to try to find meaning for his life. He quit the band and he tried to start a family. But he still couldn't find meeting, and so he got the band back together to renew his music career. He even tried celebrity fitness, and yet nothing seemed to provide the answers that he was looking for until he met her. By her, I mean Kimberly Nash. He met this woman named Kimberly, and everything changed. In fact, this is what Janie said, quote, No matter what I had, how many houses or cars, what was in the bank account, what was going on with the band or songwriting, something was always missing. I truly believe that what I needed was a soulmate. Last year, I suffered some consequences from drinking that I never suffered before in my life. And it made me step back and think, How is this how I want my life to end? And the answer is no. Why? Because Kimberly makes me want to live. Close quote. In other words, here was a man who had tried the party lifestyle, who had fame, who tried family, who had achievement, and he thought, none of that can make me happy, none of that can provide meaning, but what can is love. If only I had someone to love, if only someone loved me, if only I found my soulmate then life would make sense. And he lived for her. Do you know why I know he lived for her? Because just a couple of months after the two of them split up, Janie Lane was found in a comfort inn, dead, with a bottle of vodka and an empty bottle of pills. Because when he lost her, He lost his reason to live. Mount Pleasant, what is it about love? What is it about finding true love and being in love and falling in love that particularly in American culture makes us feel like if we had that, life would have meaning? That I could make sense out of why I'm here If I just had love. And yet what we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is a man just like Janie Lane who's trying to find the same thing and yet he comes up empty. Look at verse 8. He says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold, and the treasures of kings and provinces. I had singers, both men and women. Now notice this phrase that would be very easy to just kind of skip right on by and not really understand its significance. It says, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. Hmm. What's a concubine? So oh, Most people assume that it was some type of a sexual relationship, but actually in the ancient Near East, in biblical times, it was a lot more than that. In fact, here's what a concubine was. It was a woman who entered into a legal relationship with a man without becoming his wife. It was marriage-like. It wasn't marriage But it was marriage-like in at least two ways. Number one, the man to whom the woman belonged was considered her father's son-in-law. So it was marriage-like. And number two, the man made a legal commitment to fully provide for all of her needs. That's what a concubine was. So here's the question. Well, why did you have a concubine? And because I believe that the individual in Ecclesiastes 2 is alluding to Solomon, let's look at why Solomon had so many concubines so maybe that we'll understand what's going on here in Ecclesiastes 2. Look at 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now King Solomon had many foreign women along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidon, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Now, here we go. Solomon clung to these, that is these women, these concubines, in Love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So here's my question. What's going on here in Ecclesiastes 2? Why so many concubines. Why so many women? Well, according to 1 Kings 11, the answer is love. Love. Solomon clung to these in love. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 8, come here Mount Pleasant. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 8 is giving us a picture of a man who is spending his life in hopes that love will give him meaning. He's already tried knowledge, and that didn't work. He's already tried pleasure in the party scene, and that didn't work. He's already tried possessions and achievements, houses and vineyards and, and money, and that didn't work. So maybe love will. Maybe if I could just find my soulmate... Life would make sense. And I would submit to you that that is exactly what our culture thinks. You hear it all the time in music. The Beatles, here's what they told us, all you need is love. Frank Sinatra said you're nobody until somebody loves you. The great romantic Willie Nelson said, you're always on my mind. Bob Geldof, a song to live is love. This is like, this is Ecclesiastes if I've ever heard it. Here's the lyrics to his song. To live in love is all there is. Life without love is meaninglessness. Life without love is life denied To live in love is life defined. Life without love, absurdity. Life without love, futility. That is Ecclesiastes 2. And we not only hear it in music, we see it in movies. Oh my goodness, do we see it in movies. Like theater, Romeo and Juliet, Movies like Seepless in Seattle, Grease, Gone with the Wind. They even take our children's movies and turn them into love stories like Beauty and the Beast and Shrek. They take historic events and turn them into love. Like the Titanic. What does the Titanic have to do with love? Or Pearl Harbor. They take great sports stories like Rocky, Adrian, and it becomes about love. Even vampires fall in love. Are you kidding me? Our culture is obsessed with love. We see it in our literature. This is a quote from the movie Dead Poet Society. He says this, quote, We don't write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we're members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to life. Oh, but listen to this. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. And just think about the terminology that we use when we talk about love. She's my soulmate. He worships the ground she walks on. I found the one. And I would submit to you, it is precisely why there are some who leave the marriage simply because they're not happy. It's why some don't leave the marriage, but yet they think if I had a different husband or if I had a different wife, then I'd have a better marriage. It's why some who have never married feel like they're second class. It's the single mom who cries every night because her story didn't end happily ever after. It's the hookup and log on generation that cannot see that what they think is just sex is really a starving for something more. It's the mindset that says, if I'm attractive, I matter. It's the one who's lost a spouse like some of you. And they went beyond grieving, which is appropriate and right, to the point that they lost all hope. I would submit to you, we are just like Ecclesiastes 2. We look to love to provide meaning. But now I want to show you what his conclusion is. He's on this search trying to find meaning in life. Love is one of his pursuits. And what's the conclusion of his journey? Uh, Look in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9. Here's what he says. Enjoy life... With the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. How depressing is that? Because that is your portion in life and in your toll at which you toil under the sun. In other words, here's what Koelith would say. Because it is vanity, because expecting love to ultimately provide meaning in your life is, is pointless, here's the best you can do. Enjoy it while you can, because eventually he's going to be gone. She's going to be gone, and this is the best you got. Now, he's not trying to be too pessimistic. In fact, I would submit that he's realistic, not pessimistic. Uh, Love is a good thing, right? Husbands, you should be like amening and saying yes, okay, if for nothing else, for brownie points, right? Love is a good thing. And you should enjoy it, is what Koelith is saying. In fact, God is the God of, of romance. For, for heaven's sake, he put a man and a woman without clothes in a garden and said, be fruitful and multiply. That's pretty pro-romantic. You have passages, books like Song of Solomon. Right? Aren't you glad I'm not preaching on that this morning? Song of Solomon chapter 4 says this. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slope of Gilead. Men, try that this afternoon. It'll work. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not not one among them has lost its young. This is the literal translation of that. Your teeth are straight, they're clean, and they're all there. I'm serious. Which just means that this woman's not from my hometown in Tennessee, all right? (laughs) Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheek. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Like, love's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. You should enjoy it. The problem is when you think love is what will make you whole. The problem is when you look to love to make it be the ultimate satisfaction of your life. Ecclesiastes 2 says that won't work, and, and here's why. Look at verse 11, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11. A couple quick points, and then we're going we're gonna to bring some good news. So good I may jump off this stage. Verse 11, Ecclesiastes 2, here's why you you should enjoy love but don't make it an ultimate thing because, verse 11, I considered all my hands had done and the toil I had expended doing it and behold, here it is, all was vanity and striving after the wind and there is nothing to be gained under the sun. That word striving, it's this idea that the problem with making love the ultimate thing is that love fades. It's, it's like striving after the wind. C.S. Lewis says this. I think he's dead on. C.S. Lewis says this Being in love is a good thing, but it's not the best thing. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life. No feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even last at all. If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean, they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever would be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live with that excitement for even five years? People get the idea from books that if you've married the right person, you can go on expecting to be in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves they've made a mistake and are entitled to a change. When they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. Now again, you may say that's really pessimistic, but I would submit that's precisely what the scripture is saying. Love is a good thing. Love is a good thing, and you should enjoy love. Whether that's romantic love or just relational love or family love, that's a good thing. But the problem is it can't sustain you because it isn't sustainable. And here's the second reason. Eventually it'll be gone. Think again, the verse that we just read a few moments ago in Ecclesiastes 9, when it said, enjoy the life with your wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that you have under the sun, because it is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. In other words, all the days of your life, what does that mean? It means eventually it's going to come to an end. Here's the, I wish I had more time to unpack this, but I don't. Let me just say it quickly. What what you find in Ecclesiastes is this. The ultimate trump card for everything is death. Because death makes everything temporary. And if everything's temporary, then how in the world can it provide ultimate? It may be a good thing, but how can it provide ultimate meaning? So here's the summary. Here's a man... Pursuing love in hopes to provide meaning. But he says, it's vanity. Enjoy it while you can, because it's eventually going to go away. And the reason why is death. Death is what separates the ability of love to provide meaning in life. And so if you make that your ultimate thing you're living for, it will leave you empty death makes it all meaningless let's pray i'm just kidding we're not what a terrible ending can you imagine if i were like let's pray and go home and we're all like go to therapy and be depressed the rest of the day what would you say to this man in ecclesiastes let me bring it home What would you say to a culture that's trying the same thing? What would you say to you, who whether you know it or not, has looked to love in some way to say, if I had that, then life would matter? Here's how I would answer Ecclesiastes 2. I would answer it with Romans 8. Go there and we're done. How does the gospel of Jesus answer this quest for love? Remember, Koelith's argument, the the preacher of Ecclesiastes 2, Koelith is the Hebrew name for the preacher, is searching for love to find meaning. And he says it's vanity. And so is that the end of the story? No, it's not. Here's the argument of Romans 8 as we close. And this is why I love the the beauty of the Bible that lets us be honest. Here's what Romans 8 says. We live in a fallen world. Amen? You look around us, it's broken. Families, broken. Relationships, broken. Marriages, broken. We see the devastation of sin in relationships all around us. In fact, Paul says in verse 19 that creation was subjected to futility. That's an Ecclesiastes word. Vanity. In fact, verse 21, creation is under the bondage of decay. And Coelith would say, or the individual in Ecclesiastes 2 would say, You bet it is. I look around and I see no hope. We are in a bondage of decay. We are in the bondage of death. And that makes everything pointless. Paul and Coeleth were having this conversation. Paul says, yes, you're right. We live in bondage of decay and we see death all around us. And then Ecclesiastes would say, and that's why nothing matters. And Paul would say, hmm. Hmm. So what you're saying is you can't find meaning in love, ultimately, because of death. Love can't be an ultimate thing because if that love dies, if that person that you love dies, if your soulmate, Janie Lane, goes away, so does your hope. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Well, then what if there was a love that conquered death? What if there was a love that death couldn't keep you from? Well, that would change everything. Everything. Look at verse 32 of Romans 8. He who did not spare his own, own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love? Stop right there. What Ecclesiastes would say, I'll tell you what can separate you from love, death. What does Paul say? what can separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Look at verse 37. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, or rulers, or things present, or things to come, or powers, or height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ecclesiastes 2 says death makes love meaningless. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, no, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means you can know true love something death can't separate you from. Look at me, Mount Pleasant. Until you know that love, you will never have meaning. Until you know the love of God demonstrated to you In the death of his son, as he is crucified on the cross for your sin and rose on the third day, until you live for that love, you will always be hopeless. And so this morning, I would invite you to a love that death cannot separate you from. Do you know why death can't separate you from God's love? Because that love walked out of a grave. And there are some of you, if you'd be willing to be honest this morning, you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. And what you need to find this morning is true love. The love of a father. The love of God in Christ Jesus. This morning, I invite you, if you have experienced the failure of human love, and I would submit every one of us in this room has, I invite you to a love that never fails. If you are like Janie Lane or Solomon or And you think, if only I could find love, my soul would be complete. I would say, no, no. If only you could find Jesus, if only you would believe in Jesus, then your soul would be complete. And maybe for the first time in your life you could say, I really have found a love worth living for. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I I love how it answers real life problems. If we take an honest look at the world around us, if we take an honest look at our own hearts, love is one of the things we assume will bring us meaning. And that's true. It's just not human love. It's your love. And as good... And enjoyable as human love is, it is a gift from you. It is not ultimate love. Ultimate love was, you did not spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all. And nothing, nothing can separate us from that. I pray for those this morning who do not know your love personally. I pray they would repent of their sin, that they would believe in Jesus, that they would experience his love this morning. I pray for those who maybe have known your love but have just not been living in it, they've not experienced the fullness of it, would you cause them to repent and rededicate and renew in your love this morning. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. If we have, as we have a time of response, I'm going to ask Matt and Joanna to play and your pastor to come. If you have a decision that you need to make or someone to pray with, I invite you to come as we sing. Let's stand.
1: Unless the Lord Unless the Lord builds the house